0: As we do every Sunday, we ask if you would take your Bible or your device and open to the Scriptures this week to the letter to the Hebrews at the end of your New Testament. I need to let you know that the sermon outline is not correct. (laughs) So it says Hebrews 4. It's not. It's Hebrews 2. So just in case that is throwing you a bit, Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 18, 14 to 18 will be our text this morning. It is Easter Sunday. It's interesting, in in Russian, the word for Sunday is Resurrection Day. And so, every week, every Saturday is Sabota, Sabbath in Russian, and then on Sunday, it's always called just, it's Resurrection Day. And in that sense, every Sunday is a Resurrection Day, a day we celebrate the Resurrection. And Easter is a heightened time for this. We're going to study one of the most hope-filled passages I believe in the Bible. It is one of my go-to texts for Easter preaching. It's not a typical Easter text, but it is a passage that celebrates what Christ did and done and is going to do. And it boldly announces Jesus' coming kingdom in which he will crush and destroy the kingdom of Satan by defeating three of our greatest enemies, Satan, death, and sin. And this especially becomes clear in chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Some of you may have read uh, the uh, classic military work, The Art of War by Sun Tzu. I read it several years ago, the ancient Chinese philosopher in general. And he makes a big point, big part of his theme, is to understand one's enemy and know their strategy. And if you have any hope of defeating them. And he argues at great length, compellingly, that ignorance of our enemies... And their strategies, he applies it in military terms, is is a certain recipe for disaster and defeat. And yet the Bible declares it is important as it is to know who our enemy is, it is even more important to know who the Savior is. And the Savior, King Jesus, who at the cross began something he will complete at his second coming, and that is when the kingdom of God is fully ushered and crushes the kingdom of Satan. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. We learn three things that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection bring for God's people. He brings victory over Satan. That's the first thing we'll look at. We're just going to follow the text right through. And then he brings victory over death and victory over sin. So, first of all, let's dive into the text victory over Satan. You may notice at the top of your Bibles in English, often it says letter to the Hebrews. That's because this is really part sermon and part letter. It has a lot of components of an ancient early sermon. Many New Testament scholars believe this was an early sermon in the early church. And then, but it also has components that, that fit the, uh, the genre of a letter. But there is no book of the Bible even in the New Testament, that exalts the person and work of Christ quite in the way that Hebrews does. We use a big word for that, Christological or Christology. This has an extremely high Christology through the whole book, meaning chapter after chapter after chapter, the author of Hebrews hammers home, pounds home, the supremacy of Christ. If you could turn back to chapter 1 for just a second, the opening paragraph is unmatched in sense of exalting the Son of God, Hebrews chapter 1, just to give you a flavor for how this letter opens, verses 1 to 4, long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels, He, as His name He has inherited, is more excellent than theirs. It would be hard to find a paragraph that exalts the Son of God more And it captures his resurrection right there because it talks about after making purification for sins, he then sat down in in exaltation. Obviously, that speaks of resurrection and his ascension. And so that is where we're at today. It is a picture of the triumph and majesty and supremacy of the risen Son of God. But Hebrews does even more than that. It also talks about another being in the universe. If you go to chapter 2 now, to our text, we read of a very real creature the Bible calls him Satan, which is a Hebrew word meaning accuser. In the New Testament has a number of different titles or names called the devil, and he commands an army of demons, but the Bible is also very clear that God and the devil are not on an equal plane in any means, that God created the devil, and that the devil is God's devil and serves at his pleasure and under his authority. But he is very real and alive, and the Bible teaches that although Satan and his demons are powerful, again, they serve under the authority and sovereignty of of God, and that brings us to verse 14, where he is mentioned, and one of the fears he creates. And it's going to talk about several things here that are defeated in his kingdom. So, Hebrews 2.14, here's the argument of the passage. It's arguing that Jesus did not come to earth to save angels. He came to earth to save human beings. That is, the, this, this paragraph zeroes in on that, which means the author argues that he had to take on flesh and blood. We call this the incarnation, incarnation into flesh. Interesting, today the debate for the last 100 plus years has been among scholars and theologians, could Jesus have really been divine God? The the argument of the first century and the debates were the exact opposite. Could he have really been a human being? Exact polar opposite. The Bible teaches It was only through his death as a perfect, true human being that he was able to defeat Satan, and that is articulated and Pounded Home in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil." Likewise, we read in 1 John, a letter at the end of our New Testament, chapter 3, verse 8, these words, the reason the Son of God appeared. Now, how would you finish that sentence? If someone said to you, what was the reason the Son of God appeared? Most of us, rightly so, would go immediately to His atoning death, His righteous life. Very good answer, but something we often miss, evangelical Protestants, the reason the Son of God appeared, 1 John 3, 8, was to destroy the devil's work. So, there is a devil-crunching, devil-stomping, devil-crushing aspect to the Son of God appearing in human flesh. Now, go back to the word destroy for a minute. Some English translations, verse 14, because this can be a little confusing. I even had a good question after the first service, and it revolves around this word destroy. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partake of the same things, that through death he, Jesus, might destroy. Again, some English translations translate that word destroy. Some translated, I think better, break the power of. What do I mean? Well, most of you know the New Testament was not written in English. It was written in what we call coin Greek. That's common Greek. It has affinities to modern-day Greek. It has some affinities to classical Greek. Yeah, it's different. It was the common Greek. It was the street Greek of the day. It was the average, we call it today like a low version of Greek. And here the original Greek word, because it's translated again differently, is katargeo. And the, the question is, well, what does it mean? Does it mean destroy? Does it mean break the power of? Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean annihilation. It doesn't mean absolutely, utterly destroying the very existence. It doesn't mean ontological obliteration. It means break the grip of, or dethrone, or if you've ever had a kitty cat and you took out its front claws, declaw. That might be a good analogy of it. D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, puts it this way. He said, Jesus fundamentally smashed the reign and power of Satan. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. It does not teach in the Bible that Satan as a being will someday go out of existence. He will be around forever. And we're going to read a verse in Revelation that talks about his doom. But this is not talking about somehow annihilating him. It's talking about breaking and crushing his reign, his authority, his kingdom. That's that's the key. Satan is down for the count. That when Jesus appeared on earth through his life, through his death, his miracles, his resurrection his, uh, in his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, in his reign now, that the kingdom of Satan was dealt a massive blow. That, that's, that's the way to think of it here. He's down but not out, so to speak. He's alive seeking whom he may devour. First Peter 5 talks about he is on the prowl. He's a wounded foe on the prowl, but he is on the prowl, and he is still dangerous, according to the Bible. A little bit like a shark we caught off the coast of California years ago. I was uh, outing with some uh, Boy Scouts, Cub scouts, somebody. We were out on this outing fishing, and one of us hooked a five-foot blue shark. And so it was hoisted in. Obviously, everybody was fixated on this thing, and we got it up on the deck. And the first mate immediately took a great big knife and did what you should wisely do at that point. He cut the head off this thing right there, threw the body back in the water, which we discovered immediately. brought in lots of other sharks all under the boat, a little unnerving. But it was interesting, there it sat this open mouth, severed head, and he said, don't get near it. Don't get near it. It's still very dangerous. And to show us, he took a board, I still vividly remember this, and he stuck it in the mouth, and this thing clamped down like that. It was still dangerous for a time. For a time. And that is exactly the picture here of Satan in the Bible. The death and resurrection severely weakened Satan, and although the kingdom of God is advancing into the darkness, it is not yet a complete kingdom. So you'll sometimes hear New Testament scholars talk about Christ's kingdom, and they'll use this phrase, it's a now, not yet thing. You ever heard that phrase? Now, not yet. Meaning meaning what? It's advancing. And it will completely dominate one day. It is now advancing. It was ushered in and began at the life and death of Jesus' resurrection, but it isn't complete yet. That's the whole now, not yet. And one of my favorite illustrations over the years of this is an illustration, comes from World War II, and it was used by the Swiss theologian, Oscar Coleman. And he used the analogy of D-Day to talk about this now not yet aspect of Jesus' triumph. And his whole point was this. Uh, on June 6, 1944, the, uh, the D-Day invasion, uh, when they landed in Normandy, obviously the enemy was dealt a massive blow, Right? dealt a massive blow. Hitler was dealt a massive blow on that day. His army was badly injured. It was badly wounded. It was badly damaged. And anyone who understood what was going on realized something changed at that moment. In every, during every war, there's a moment when things shift. In the Civil War, it was the Battle of Gettysburg. World War II was D-Day. It doesn't, doesn't mean that the war was over yet, but something shifted. Something shifted. Now, there still had to be battles fought. Smaller battles. There had to be the liberation of Paris. There had to be the Battle of the Bulge and the battle for Berlin. The Allies still had work to do. They still had to go hedgerow by hedgerow, road by road, city by city, but the end was in sight. That's That's the point. In other words, June 6, 1944, Hitler's army was crippled. One year later, his army was crushed. And in a similar way, the writer of Hebrews here is saying that the arrival of Jesus on planet earth was like D-Day against Satan and his vast army of of demons. In other words, the life of Jesus, his atoning death, his resurrection and his ascension dealt a massive blow to the enemy. But there's a difference between being dethroned and destroyed. In the first coming, you might say, The power of Satan's kingdom was crippled. He was dethroned, declawed. In the second coming, the Savior will come and crush his kingdom. Now, I said, that doesn't mean Satan himself, he's an individual being, by the way. He's not omnipresent. He is not, we speak sometimes as if he's everywhere. He's not. He has an army of demons that do a lot of his work. But it doesn't mean that they, or especially him, will utterly be, like, vanquished someday or vaporized. He isn't. Why don't you turn to one verse at the end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, where it's very clear what a defeated foe will be treated like. He will not be annihilated, even though his kingdom will be utterly destroyed and crushed. He himself will live on into the ages as a tormented prisoner and foe and rebel against the holy God. And Revelation 20.10 is a very chilling verse that reads this way, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, the devil will not be vaporized or annihilated. His kingdom will be crushed. That's what we're talking about here, and that's what's important to understand. Jesus' victory over Satan. Secondly, chapter 2, verse 15, talks about Jesus' victory over death. We just walk right through the text, verse by verse here. The second thing we learn in this section in Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 15, Satan lost his hold on us, specifically on the fear of death that he instills in so many. So verse 15. And deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's a sobering verse. Let's be honest. A lot of us fear death. For some of us, it's a paralyzing fear. And a lot of us fear the process of dying, But then the question is, on the other side of that, what is there? And that's where there is even more terror on the part of many people. This is one of Satan's greatest weapons. He weaponizes fear when it comes to death. And a fear of death holds many in bondage. Some of us here this morning are in bondage to a fear of death. And one of the things I hope you'll hear this morning is that Christ came to deliver, give us victory over death if we know him as Lord and Savior. Death has a paralyzing fear for so many, even those who claim they're not afraid of death. One of my favorite illustrations is Somerset Maugham, who was a British novelist back in the 30s, one of the highest-paid novelists in Britain in the 1930s. I mean, think today of uh, John Grisham or Tom Clancy or someone like that, and you, you have the, the stratosphere that Somerset Maugham traveled in. He wrote a memoir called A Traveler in romance, when he was 90 years old, he was an atheist, he didn't believe in God, and he claimed to be liberated by the thought of dying and having no afterlife, he claimed not to fear death. He writes, quote, of being eager for death so that he can fly into it as into the arms of a lover. This is, he writing this at 90 years old, and he wrote, I do not believe in life after death, nor do I desire it. And then he spoke glowingly, quote, of dissolving into nothingness, close quote. Much like Buddhism. What's so sobering about Somerset Malcolm is that his nephew went on record in the London Times, April 9th, 1978, and talked about visiting his uncle in his dying days at his Mediterranean villa. And he talks about what he saw there, and he said his uncle just prior to death had become consumed by a fear of death. And so we can say all we want when we're feeling healthy and vigorous and the sun shining. But when the day comes and we're close to drawing our last breath, the question is, are we prepared to step through that curtain in what's on the other side? Friends, the Bible says we're going to die someday. Unless Christ returns, in a little over 100 years, nobody in this room is going to be alive on this planet anymore. We're going to be six feet underground. At best, some of us won't even have the privilege sometimes of having a body found. It is a privilege to have even a body found in a celebration of a funeral. But the reality is, 100 years, young or old, in this room, we will not be alive. As the British economist John Maynard Keynes said, in the long run, we're all dead. Statistics are death is still one per person. So we're all going to die. But the question is this. Are you ready to face death? Not, I'm not talking about the process of dying. That can be intimidating. And that can be frightening, for sure. Are you prepared, once you've drawn your last breath, for what is on the other side? And that is what Jesus came to deliver fear of. And This is where his death, his resurrection offer, hope to those believe. John's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 25 has to be one of the most read verses at funerals, and especially at the cemetery. It's one I almost always have used when I'm at the cemetery. At a funeral, John 11:25, Jesus said, "I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. The Bible says Jesus conquered death by his death. That's a key thing. was for the Puritans. He conquered death by his own death and his resurrection from the dead. Hence, you have a Puritan classic from someone like John Owen, and the title of his classic is The Death of Death in the Death of Christ, one of the greatest treatments on this topic. And, friend, young people, this is what gives confidence to the great saints of old who faced death or even martyrdom. Someone like a William Tyndale who translated the Bible in English, even though it was forbidden by law, to defy British law on this topic and translate the Bible into English and face execution for it. Because he was a Roman Catholic priest at the time, they at least gave him the privilege, so to speak, of being strangled before they burned him alive. He took it, but he was still martyred. But what gives someone like that the confidence? What gave another 300 Christians confidence under the reign of Bloody Mary to face martyrdom with confidence? And it's the hope of life after death. And this is where this passage, this is where the New Testament, this is where Hebrews screams out, whoever believes in Jesus, whoever calls out to him will have eternal life. And this is where Easter, this is where the resurrection of Jesus comes in by his death, by his death, burial. By his resurrection and ascension, he triumphed over death, and he removes the fear of what's on the other side. Because the Bible says, one day, those who know Christ, who've been reconciled to him, will be with him forever in the new heaven and new earth. You say, well, what exactly is the new heaven, new earth like? I had someone after first service ask me some good questions about it. What's it like? I said, well, think one word, Physical. Because American Christians, at least, that I've talked to and here, think way too much in invisible categories when it comes to the afterlife. There's a, there's, there's a point when we're disembodied from, our, from our, our, our body, when our spirit is disembodied from our body, but in the general resurrection of the dead, at the end of time, all human beings who have ever lived will be resurrected bodily. The Bible knows nothing of resurrected souls or resurrected spirits. It knows of the resurrection of the the Greek word soma, body. That's the physical body to face judgment and either spend eternity in one of two places, heaven or hell. If you go to the new earth someday, remember this was the new earth. This was created as paradise at one point. It's under a curse now. John Wesley's great hymn, far as the curse is found, we're now under a horrible curse. But this planet gives you a flavor of the new heavens and new earth, but it's under a horrendous curse right now. But the new heavens and new earth, I mean, think about places like the Rockies and Cancun and the Alps and Tahiti and New Zealand kind of all rolled into one with no curse, no disease, no suffering, no death, no tears. And you have an idea of what awaits the redeemed. And that is why a true follower of Jesus, hear this, can face death with confidence and not fear. And it's what gives followers of Jesus courage to even face martyrdom, even to take the gospel and go to places on this planet as missionaries that are deemed unsafe and hostile and devote their lives to taking the gospel to those peoples because of what we are promised after death. And that is very clear. In verse 15, Jesus came to free his people from the fear of death. And then lastly, the thought of the text and the flow of the text moves right into verses 16 to 18, where it talks about Jesus' victory over sin. So you could have no more fear of death, but then you have a sin problem. And so Jesus came to deliver those who surrender from the coming judgment and God's wrath. So in other words, verses 16 to 18 flow right out of and complete the thought of verses 14 and 15. Just to recap, look at verses 14, 15, what's the text say? It tells us that Jesus' death disarmed and loosened Satan's authority over mankind, broke his authority, but he's still alive. He's still a wounded foe, prowling about. Verses 16 to 18 now tell us how Jesus' death accomplished this. So let me read verses 16 to 18. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, I'll come back to that in a second, for the sins of the people. Now, go back to the word propitiation. That's so Greek, word, comes from a Greek word It's only used four times in the New Testament. Some translations translate this to make atonement. Some say make propitiation. What is it? To, propi- <laughs> to propitiate, is very simple. It means to appease the anger and justice of someone that we have wrongly violated and sinned against. That is what propitiation is. That's what it means to propitiate. That's the word used right here. And the Bible teaches that through his perfect life and atoning death, he had to have the perfect life. Jesus had to fulfill the law perfectly. A lot of Christians forget that. And then he had to offer his life as the perfect sacrifice. Jesus paid for the sins of his people. He propitiated God's justice for the sake of the elect. That's the key. Unfortunately, this word, which is at the heart of New Testament salvation, this is at the heart of New Testament soteriology. This word and this concept gets dropped out of the vocabulary of many pastors in many pulpits in our land. And the whole here's the problem. The whole concept of being born and somehow alienated from God is foreign to most people, especially people that live in an affluent culture like we do. America is 5% of the human race. We live in the Disney World bubble here. God put us here. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing, but we need to remember that the rest of the world and much of the world is not like this. And so as we look at this and we think, what is propitiation, and what is it that we're delivered from? A lot of people living in a Disneyland kind of bubble of affluence don't even think about, "I'm alienated from God. It's a foreign concept to many that we go to school with or, or, or live in a dorm with or work with or, or sip coffee at Starbucks with or, or in our neighborhood. Most are not walking around think about it, terrified that at any moment they could slip off into judgment. That used to be a real fear. You read sermons of old, you read those that uh, wrote back three or 400 years ago, you would read of a very real terror at times they lived under of passing into eternity and missing out on salvation. But most today that we read, and even most of us, some of you, are not walking around thinking at any moment the judgment of God could fall. And yet Isaiah 59.2 said, our sins, Isaiah 59.2 in the Old Testament, our sins have separated us from God. Your sins, my sin has separated me from God. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. The Bible paints a very ugly picture of what's going on. So as we talk about around here, before you understand what the good news is, you have to understand the bad news. And the bad news, quite honestly, is what's got dropped out of the vocabulary of much of Protestantism in America today. The bad news has to be announced because it's the backdrop for the good news. So let's be crystal clear because we are in Crystal Lake. Ready? What's the bad news? The bad news is we're born into sin. I'm a sinner by birth. I'm a sinner by nature. I'm a sinner by choice. I am a rebel. I am a lawbreaker. And so are you. So are all human beings except for Jesus. That's the bad news and because of it the Bible says we're alienated from God under his wrath is appointed in Hebrews 9 it says unto all people to die once and after this to face judgment. You will face judgment one day and so will I. That's the bad news. That brings us to the good news. And a lot of us know, not all of us but you may know, the word good news is the same word gospel. In fact, they're used interchangeably, and they're both a translation of the Greek word euangelion. You can translate either way, good news, gospel. But it's only good news if you understand the backdrop, the bad news. So what's the good news? That there's still hope. If you're alive and breathing, assume you are, if you're alive and breathing, no matter what you've done, the Bible says, there's hope. You can be forgiven, and you can be reconciled to God. And you can be restored and assured of where you will be for all eternity someday. That's the point. So the bad news, we need to be reconciled to God. The good news, Jesus came to live the righteous life and offer his life as an atoning death and rose from the dead. That leads to a burning question this morning. And what is the burning question this morning? And that question is simply this. How can I find forgiveness and be reconciled to God? And if you don't leave with anything else, And I don't know how often you're in church, but may you hear very clearly this morning how to make sure you know God. And I'm just going to quote one verse from Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. And it's Jesus, verse 15, says, He came preaching and says, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. There's the summons. No summons, no sermon. The problem with a lot of sermons, there's no summons. Every sermon has to have a summons. It's summoning us to something, something to do, something not to do, something to believe, something not to believe. The summons of today's text, the summons of the New Testament, the summons of Jesus, repent and believe, that's how you know God. Young people, that's how you know God. You say, well, what is that? Well, to repent, old-fashioned word, but a very good word, biblical, means quit making excuses, stop the blaming, Man up to your sin, stop the spin, and ask forgiveness, and humble yourself in fear of the living God. I don't know how to put it any clear. That's what it means to repent. It is a change of attitude, perspective, and behavior all in one. But that's not enough. A lot of the world's religions teach repentance. They don't teach the next step. That is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so that's the gospel. When Jesus says repent and believe the good news or believe the gospel, what is the gospel? That Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the only Messiah. John 14, 6, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one, it's a pretty all-inclusive term, no one comes to the Father, he said, except through me. He says in John 3, unless someone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. And he said that to a highly educated religious leader not to some pagan secularist or pagan occultist. He said this to Nicodemus, who was a very highly esteemed religious leader. And Jesus looked right at him and said, you're not saved, you're lost, and unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And the Bible goes on to teach this. Those who do experience spiritual rebirth will have God's Holy Spirit take up residence in them. And they will become one with Christ and united with Christ and have a hope and a confidence that the world can't understand. And that is the teaching of the New Testament. And then it says because of that, they will produce good works. Now, the Bible is very clear. Good works don't save anyone. You don't get saved by trying to obey the Ten Commandments. We just finished a series on the Ten Commandments. All the Ten Commandments will show us how sinful we are and how much trouble we're in. You don't get saved by trying to obey the Ten Commandments. You're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But once you're saved and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, you are a new creature. New creature, meaning new desires, new attitudes, new behaviors will begin to emerge over time. That's the key. Not saved by good works, but they are the evidence that we know Christ. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 14, verse 15. He said, if you love me... You will keep my commandments. That's simple. Again, we're not saved by good works. Good works are the evidence that we're saved. And the very first command given to any person who has become a believer in Christ is to go in the waters of baptism and be immersed. That's why it was preached in the same sentence in the early apostles on the day of Pentecost repent and be baptized and be saved. They didn't mean baptism was part of salvation, but it was hooked that closely. The Bible knows nothing of an unimmersed and unbaptized Christian. It's an oxymoron. Last Sunday, we had the privilege of having 13 people undergo water baptism over here. It was awesome if you were here, hearing the stories of how people had come to Jesus and repented of their sin and placed their faith and now, in obedience, were going public for Jesus in the waters of baptism. It is the very first command given to anyone who knows Christ as Lord and Savior. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus. That is the gospel Hebrew announces. And may today we celebrate that Christ is risen. Amen? Amen. He is risen indeed. Father, thank you for the author of Hebrews, for this letter sermon that is so Christ-centered and exalting. We thank you that Jesus does... Promise victory over Satan, victory over death, and victory over sin. And that this paragraph shouts that out so powerfully. I pray for those who don't know Christ here today. Even if they've attended this church for years and they're unsaved, may today be their day of humbling themselves under your mighty hand and experiencing the beauty of Christ and his forgiveness. Let them see Christ. And for those of us who do know Jesus, may today send us out with gospel confidence to share that good news with those around us we love who are not on their way to heaven right now. May you give us an urgency to share the gospel with those around us who are dying and perishing. And we pray all of this in Jesus' good and mighty name. Amen.